If we have a little phrase at, at Hope, and especially as Hope has diversified. When, when we started the church, I had a little joke that I said that I was pastor and secretary and janitor of Hope Community Church, which was very true. And now I don't even know what I do anymore. There's just, I, I counted, there's 16 staff here. Oh my gosh. And so people ask me questions now about what's going on at Hope, and I say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. And I have this little thing here, if you want to show it up there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Timmer, did I not use this this morning? I did. Where are you, Tim? Yeah, did I not use this this morning? Sing the loop, me. Yeah, that is, that is exactly what, what's going on. And uh, there's a lot of you at Hope Community. We'll see quite a few of them come in at 1130. <laughs> I, gotta, I want to take a little vote here. I think we should just not observe Daylight Savings Time as a church. I'm serious. I think Sunday morning, why do, why do they impose on churches that we have to get up early? Why not, why not let's just all show up an hour late to work on Monday morning? Amen? Huh? What's this church thing? Everybody gets messed up for church, huh? Can I take a vote? It's passed. Good. There was a show on PBS, it was called Frontier House. Anybody see Frontier House? Anybody a PBS nerd like me? Okay, good. There was a show, it's called Frontier House. And what it was, they took these three families and their, and their cousins and uncles and all that kind of thing, and they took them to Montana, brought them out there in the mil middle of the wilderness, and, and they set the date as best they could. They got a Montgomery Ward uh, uh, catalog and they did as best they could to set them up what it would be like to be on the frontier in Montana in 1883 and to see if they could make it for a year but they wouldn't actually live out the year, if that makes any sense. They were going to be there six months, June to, June to December, and at December they were going to see if they would make it through the winter as if they would have had to make it through a Montana Montana winter. And it was, it was a great show. It was an interesting show. They had all these things they're going through. And it would have been really intense uh, for some of the women. The most biggest hardship they had was, do you remember? Mascara. For the young women, they had to figure out how to make mascara. I thought, oh my goodness, this is a gender thing. Because I'm thinking, mascara does not at all. I, I, I'm fine if I don't use it for a couple days, you know. <laughs> So, but anyway, they had all these hardships going on. If you, if you watch the show like I did, I thought it was a fascinating thing, a cultural shock. But the, the show was shot from June of 2001 until December of 2001. They have no contact with the outside world. Zero. They're not allowed to see any media. They're not allowed to see any newspapers. They're allowed to see nothing. They caught the dates, right? June of 2001 to December of 2001. Well, September 11th happened. And the film crew knew about September 11th. And they were debating, what do we do? Do we tell them or do we not tell them? I mean, it's kind of a dilemma. It's going to change their experience quite a bit here out on the frontier if all of a sudden we yank them back. They decided to tell them. And they, there's, it's a great episode where they, they, they stay kind of in the, the 1883 uh, mode, but they also shift a little bit out. But there's that, that time warp thing happening. This did happen in the latter part of the 18th century. There were people who, on the prospect of free land, they left the state of Virginia, 
and they, they were trying to get out to the frontier, but if, if a horse died or if their wagon broke down or whatever reason, they ended up in the mountains. And, and they were just isolated. There's one story where a, a group of people were so isolated up in the mountains, for 20 years they did not see a, a white man. They didn't see another white man for 20 years. And finally, these settlers were coming through and they were going to go through the mountains and they happened to take the same path where these people had ended up kind of settling. Twenty-some years had gone by and they came to them and they, they asked them, you know, of course now here's a person who speaks English and they know about them. All this conversation came and these people that had just come and asked them, well, what do you think about, what do you think about the revolution and the, and the Continental Congress and all that? And, and these people said, What? They thought, they thought that they were still loyal subjects to the British king. For 20 years, they didn't know anything about George Washington or the revolution. Here's the loop. Here's them. They were out of it. We're going to look at, we're continuing on our series called The Church on Fire. It's a look at the book of Acts. We're going to travel with Paul to the city of Ephesus this morning. And we're going to see three groups of people that are out of the loop. Completely out of loop. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible or you just prefer to look on the insert, we have an insert in your worship folder that should give you kind of an outline of where we're going. You can just follow along on the screen or whatever gives you joy. However you want to do that, you'll see how, where we're going with this. Ephesians chapter 19, we're going to look at the first 20 verses of that chapter this week and we'll finish up next week at the retreat. We'll be looking at uh, the, the second half of this, this chapter. I'm going to start in verse 1. And we're just going to kind of read it through and make comments along the way. In fact, one time I'm going to stop for, for quite a bit. So Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1, says, While Apollos was at Corinth, remember him? We, we left him a couple weeks before Easter here. We left this guy named Apollos who Priscilla and Aquila had trained more Apollos had known some things, but we don't know exactly what he was deficient in. And, and Priscilla and Aquila trained him more. And then they sent him to the, the region of Achaia. And, and there is Corinth, is over in that region. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So, got my handy-dandy map here. See, my pen, my pen works. That's a funny story here. I was teasing poor Nathan Ziegler about his pen that he gave me that didn't work last week or two weeks ago when I wanted it. You know what it was? It had it in my pocket. And this morning as I looked at it, there was a huge thing of lint there. <laughs> <laughs> it was not for my belly button, so don't worry. But, uh, <sighs> but anyway, pen works now. So um, <clears throat> this, is, this is Paul's home church. Remember Antioch? And he's traveling through here. We saw him in Acts chapter 16, the middle of Acts, or excuse me, Acts chapter 18, the middle of that. He's leaving on his third journey. And he's going through this middle area here. And he's going to revisit all these churches that he's seen before. And he's finally going to make it to Ephesus. Now, Paul has wanted to go to Ephesus for a while. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus is a very, very important city. It is the capital of the region of Asia, uh, that it's not listed on this particular map, but Asia is uh, this region right in here. So this Ephesus, I guess if it's the capital, it has to include it, doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, it's this region right here. So um, it was the capital. So it's a political city. You got a bunch of politicians. It's also a seaport city. It was at that time. Uh, now it's been moved back. 
But at, the, at that time, it was a seaport city, so you have a lot of commercialism. So you've got politicians, and you've got commercialism. You can already see what kind of city this would be. There's one other thing. This was one of the most pagan cities in the world at the time. It contained uh, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. This is an artist's rendition. If you want to go to the next one there. Um, oops, sorry. Yeah, a lot. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, it's one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, uh, which also known as Diana. She was one of the 12, the top 12 pagan uh, Greek gods, you know, Zeus and, and the other 10, and Artemis. <laughs> Big time. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People came from all over to see this particular temple. There's a little bit left of it in uh, this photo here. This was taken before it went to um, Britain. Most of this now is in a museum in, in, in Britain. But there's a little bit of the ruins of the temple. I found that on the internet. Paul, this was a wild place. So what you've got here is you've got this, this uh, like I said, you've got the uh, politics happening. You've got the commercialism happening. You've got this incredible amount of paganism happening. In fact, so much paganism was happening that there's a phrase um, you know, there's a phrase called Ephesians writing, writings, Ephesian writings. If you were to use that phrase in the ancient world, if you were just to say, this looks like an Ephesian writing, it would not mean that it came from Ephesus, it would just mean that it was something to do with sorcery, or it was some kind of incantation, or some way to catch spells on people. It didn't mean that it came from there. You know, and, and so it's just like, they, they was such a common thing. It'd be like saying something about Wisconsin and IQ. It's the same kind of... <laughs> Tough crowd. <laughs> and Paul's letter to the book of, to, excuse me, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is filled with probably, or no, for sure, his most complete argument on spiritual warfare. He gives very clear argument in the end of his, of his book to the Ephesians, chapter 6, on what is this whole concept of spiritual warfare? What does it mean that you live in a culture there's very pagan things, the, the reality of Satan and demons is true? How do you live in a, in a, in a battle against those things? And that's listed more, better than any other book of Paul in the book of Ephesians. Ephesus was a wild place. You got commercialism, politics, and paganism. Woo! Sounds like Minneapolis. Just got all this stuff happening. And yet Paul really wanted to go there. Would you flip back a couple, Mark? I, I skipped the order here, sorry. Paul really, oh, one, there you go. He really wanted to go here. Remember in Acts chapter 16, he wanted to go to this region. And it says, Acts chapter 16, verse 6 says, the Holy Spirit kept him from going there. And then he finally gets there in Acts chapter 18. Go to the next one there, Mark. And it says he arrived there. He went into the synagogue and he, and he, he reasoned with the Jews and then they, they, there's a positive response, which we're like, wow, there's a positive response in the synagogue. There hardly ever is. And Paul, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, says, I can't stay. I got to go. It's like, what? Don't you really want to stay here? He really wanted to be here, but you sensed this wasn't the right time. Well, now it is the right time. He has come back to Ephesus, and he's going to stay there for 27 months. This is going to be a major stop. Major stop for Paul. Okay, let's look at the first group of people that he's going to meet. I'm calling them out of the loop group one. Those who were not given the full message. 
Let's just read this and then we'll come back and kind of talk about it. Second half of verse 1 says, There he found some disciples. And he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's, it's John the Baptist, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, this is, these people are out of the loop. Big time. You think that story about what's going on in Virginia is, is, is silly. This is, John the Baptist came on the scene in about 20, uh, 27 AD. That's about when John the Baptist came on the scene. Our John the Baptist ended being on the scene literally by losing his head in 29 BC, roughly. So it wasn't around very long, a couple years of the ministry when Christ was around too. This now, most people think that the time when Paul comes to Ephesus is somewhere in the region between 52 and 55 AD. Did I say BC before? I did, didn't I? I'm sorry. 27 AD and uh, 29 AD. And so uh, Paul comes to reading about 52, 55. That, that, that's some, between 22 and 25 years have passed. And all these people know is what John told them. John told them, repent for the kingdom of God is coming and someone bigger than me is coming. That's it. That's all they've known for some 22, 25 years. So Paul comes to them and says, uh, uh, you guys really get the whole message here? Do you understand it? And they're like, no, we don't have a clue what's going on. And so he explains to them the message, the full message of what happened, who Christ was, that Christ came. He's the Messiah. He's the one to come. But not only was the Messiah to lead us, he's the one who was going to come and die to do two things, to satisfy the wrath of God that should land on us and to provide a reconciliation, a way that we can come back to God. These guys were excited. These guys were excited. Once they understood what had happened, this was very exciting. So it says they immediately accepted it. They were baptized. That's a way of saying they, they accepted it. They were baptized into now Jesus Christ. They accepted the message. Paul places his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and they prophesied right there. These people are doing a dance. You can just see it. They're a happy dance. This is a very good day. Now, this would describe me. This would describe many of you in this room. You were out of the loop. I went to church. I can't tell you how long. I, 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 I remember going to church constantly as a kid. And I don't ever once remember hearing that I was a person who, although God had made me and loved me, that I had sinned against a holy God and that there was a punishment that needed to happen. Either I was going to pay for it or Jesus Christ was going to pay for it. And that I could allow, by accepting Christ, by allowing him to be my sin bearer, I could allow Christ to come into my life and change me from the inside out and he could be my Savior and my Lord. I had never heard that message and I went to church all the time. Now, it could just be that I didn't hear it 
or it could just be that it wasn't clearly said. But I was out of the loop. Many of you come from church backgrounds where you think, yeah, I, I grew up, but if, if, I were to, if, if someone were to ask you, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, I don't know, go to church, make sure you're there on time on daylight savings. You know, that makes you a Christian or I don't know. The whole fact that it's about Christ from beginning to end, that like 1 John 5 says, he who has the Son has life, it's just not a concept you remember hearing. Could just be that you're a kid. It could just be that it wasn't proclaimed. I was out of the loop. And in 1983, I got in the loop. I said, if that's how it works, if Christ is the one who can pay for my sins, or I can pay for them, guess what? I'm going to let him pay for them. It's the best deal in the world. Why, I'd be a fool not to take it. Of course it comes with a cost. cost me everything. It's a free gift that'll cost you everything you got. I'm going to take that. That sounds great. That definitely was me. Now, if that's you this morning, if you're here for the first time, you're hearing the message that through Christ you can know, you can know that your sins are forgiven, you can know you're on your way to heaven, you can know that you don't have to earn your way to heaven, you don't have to do anything, you just trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you this morning to do just like I did. Just to... Just to Come to a point where you confess your sins, you believe that Jesus Christ was who he was, and you, you accept him into your life, you ask him to come in, you ask him to be your savior. You, through prayer, you, ask, you can just do it right where you're, you can do it right while I'm, I'm talking. You can do it right before you take communion. You could do it while we pray at the end. You can do it any time. Make that commitment to turn to Christ. Now, I need to take a little bunny trail here. There's no good way except just to say I'm taking a little bunny trail here. This passage, this particular passage, is, is the most important passage for people that would come from a Pentecostal background. And, and, and many of you I know in this room do come from that background. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this issue of the baptism of the Spirit. This is, this is number one passage. And so... Uh, uh, Basically, if you're wondering where I'm going to land on this one, I'll just tell you right now, I'm going to make everybody in the room mad. So if you're going to get mad at the beginning, fine. I'll make everybody else mad later, okay? So there we are all happy. <laughs> there are four accounts. I'm pushing one of them, but I think it's an account. There are four accounts in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes upon this group of people and the manifestation, the way it shows up, is evidenced by speaking in other languages. Other languages, at least in the book of Acts, for sure in Acts chapter 2, it is other languages that are foreign to your ear, but others would understand it. That's for sure the way it is in Acts chapter 2. We can make the assumption that's the way it is from there on. We're not exactly sure, but that's the way it was. There are four accounts. The first one I just mentioned is Acts chapter 2. That's the... That's the time when Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And that happens at Pentecost to the, to the 12 disciples, to the 120 that are up in the, up in the room. It happens to all the believers in Jesus at that time. The Holy Spirit comes on, remember that tongues of fire thing and the earth shake and it was just an amazing thing. And they're speaking in other languages and people are in Jerusalem for the feast and all these people are hearing them declare praises in their native languages. Whoa! That is freaky. <laughs> it's like the, in the movie The Incredibles. Have you seen that? 
the very end of it. That was wicked! That's such a great, that's such a great line. Um, but uh, wicked in a good way. Um, but, but this is just awesome. I mean, if you were to see it, you'd just be, it would just shake you with not freakiness, but awesome with wowness, okay? Nobody was freaked necessarily. They did think they were drunk. But, but, but they, they, they were just, this is really cool. Okay, this happens again in Acts chapter 8. Uh, it doesn't specifically say in Acts chapter 8 that they speak in tongues, but I, I do think they did. Um, because it's so, it's so clear what happens. This happens when they go to Samaria. This is, a, a, remember Samaritans were, ooh, like half-breeds. You know, they were half-Jewish and half from this other region. They kind of intermarried and Jews, they were like lowly people. That's where the, the, Jesus used the story of the good Samaritan to make it like the lowliest person you could think of. Someone who had intermarried, like Wisconsin, Minnesota, they intermarried. What do you do with them? You know, same thing. So, they're just, they're, they're, and so when the word of God goes to these people and they accept it, it says again that uh, uh, in verse um, 17 of chapter 8, then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now it doesn't say they specifically spoke in tongues, but I, I do think they did. I think it's fair to say that it was an evident thing. They could see it. Everybody was clear that the Samaritans had it. This happens again in Acts chapter 10. This time it comes to a different group of people. This time it comes to the Gentiles. They weren't Jewish at all. No Jewish uh, roots, no Jewish DNA in them whatsoever. And <clears throat> Peter's speaking to them, telling them about Christ. And then it says, the Holy Spirit just came on them. The circumcised believers in verse 45 of chapter 10 here, uh, those who were Jewish, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So then they all get baptized. And so they all become part of the church. And it's like, whoa, man, this is a different thing. It's not just the Jewish people. It's not just the kind of people who are half Jewish. It's even to these way out there people who are, are, are Gentiles. They're not at all Jewish by birth. And the fourth time in the book of Acts is this group right here. These people who are out of the loop. These people that they were, sounds like they were probably Jewish. Um, in Acts chapter 19, and they become, they get baptized and Paul lays their hand on them and they speak in tongues. That's the only accounts in the book of Acts of, of this particular manifestation of the Spirit happening. Now, what are we supposed to make of this? I want to make three observations about this. And I also want to look at Paul's teaching to the Corinthians, which was written right around this time. So this would be really relevant. Okay, first one. These Pentecost experiences, I'm calling them Pentecost because they're like Pentecost, uh, what happens in Acts chapter 2, those four accounts were given for sure, to show that these type of people were in. No doubt about it. I mean, that's how, if you want to take the case in point of the, the Gentiles, they say, well, should we baptize them? Well, geez, they're out there speaking in tongues, just like we did. They, they must be part of the family. Okay, so it, it, clearly it says that those were given so that when the gospel spread, when the news of Christ spread to a new group of people, it clearly indicated 
that they were now part of the community of faith, that these people were accepted in. Okay? Not, I don't think anybody disputes that. The question then is, is, okay, well, what about today? What about today? What is normative in the life of, uh, of the early, excuse me, was it normative in the life of the early church and of today that all people would have this manifestation of speaking in tongues and maybe even prophesying as an evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit? That's the huge question. Second thing. Tongues are a spiritual gift, but not a sign of this receiving of the Holy Spirit. It is not a sign of, is not a sign of a second blessing. And I know many of you come from Pentecostal backgrounds, and what I just said is, could be offensive. I'm going to lift you up in a few seconds, so just hang on. Just hang on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, Verse 7. Remember, this letter is written to the Corinthians roughly around this time. So he's talking about these things. He says, now to each one, verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's the most important verse in the Bible on spiritual gifts. The manifestation of the Spirit. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's a manifestation of the Spirit. It's a showing off of the Spirit. It's given to, to the individual... To each one, it says. And what's it for? It's for the common good. Ironically, sometimes these spiritual gifts have div divided us. So what's it's for. It, it's for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the one Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to an, still another, the interpretations of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and it gives them to each one just as he determines. Now my... My argument here would be, is if it was normative for any one of the certain gifts to come at the point when you have received the Spirit of God, then Paul would have made it clear here. He, he's actually saying it's not that way. There's different kinds of gifts, and they're used in different kinds of ways. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have received the Holy Spirit into your life, then you do have spiritual gifts. It says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. You do. Some of you have been given by God sign gifts that are, are, are more uh, spiritual in nature. And that's beautiful. Some of you have not. You've been given more natural gifts, leadership, uh, whatever. Are they a sign? Is tongues then a sign today and in the early church, even here at Corinth, was it a sign that you've received a second blessing? And my answer to that is no. Now, third point. It's going to almost undo the second one. However, they, along with all other kinds of spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophetic utter utterances, should be eagerly desired. 1 Corinthians 12, continuing on, I skip a chunk there of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I commend that whole chapter to you, but verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 
And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all, are all apostles? Rhetorical question. Answer, no. And that's the way it is throughout this. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to that is no. Not everybody does those things. But then it says this. But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then he says, and I will show you the most excellent way. And he's going to go into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is about love. Because you need love when you've got people with different kinds of gifts. You do. You need love just when you've got different kinds of people. Now, there's two reactions, or what I would call overreactions, to the sign gifts. The gift of tongues, the gift of utterances, the gift of miracles. Sign gifts. Evidence that clearly, I mean, someone could be a leader. Uh, they're just, you know, just a charismatic person. Uh, maybe that's a bad word. Um, they're just a, a, a winsome person. But miracle-type gifts are things that are, you know, wow. Those are sign gifts. And he says to eagerly desire those. I think there's two overreactions. One is... In order to be a spirit-filled spirit -filled Christian, you must speak in tongues. Now, that is, that is uh, a kind of prominent teaching in some more Pentecostal movements that you must. It is a sign of the second blessing. And if you don't have that, uh, it's not that you're not a Christian, but you just don't have all of the Spirit. I have relatives who pray every day for me, that I will speak in other languages. And I told them, I said, I, I, I'm honored that you pray that. And I would love, I've prayed for that gift. I don't have that gift. I would like that gift. I don't have it. If you want to pray for me for that, I'd really love you pray that I just have however God wants to manifest himself in my life. If it's other languages, cool. If it's being able to do you know, integral calculus without a piece of paper and a pencil, that'd be cool too. I don't care. <laughs> However God wants to manifest himself through me, that would be awesome. So every day I got relatives who are praying that for me. That's great. But there is a movement and it's hurt many people who take you into a back room and, you know, you, you, you just start to utter, should it be a Honda? Should it be a Honda? Should it be a Honda? To just get yourself out of this room. But the second overreaction is this. Jeez, you know, so many people have been hurt by this gift. So many people have been hurt by shame into thinking, I don't possess it, so therefore I'm not a real Christian. I'm not a spirit-filled Christian. Should we just, should just neglect, just get rid of it? Let's not deal with tongues and other miraculous things that the Spirit's going to do. It just causes too much strife and there's so much hurt and division. Okay. I admit that's a possibility. But if you use that same logic, do not get married. Because it causes hurt and division and strife. Or, you know what? Do not enter into politics. Because that has hurt a lot of people. 
and most certainly do not read this book because this book has caused a lot of division over the years. All right? That makes no sense. It's a horrible argument to say, you know, let's just get rid of it because, uh, you know, it just hurts people. Well, yeah, so does Bible reading. I'm not going to get rid of Bible reading. There have been documented, and I will say documented, healings in this church. I, I, I cannot explain that. That's a manifestation of God. I do not, we don't claim to be miracle workers. No one says if you come and we'll touch you and you get healed. No. But God has done things. There have been people with cancer who have not had cancer. I mean, I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't have a box I can put that in other than the God box. I put tongues there too. I put other workers of sign things there too. Let God be God. Let God be God in this stuff. And if he decides to, to give you those things, awesome. Run with them. There is a tendency, I think, in the more evangelical churches to just avoid that, those gifts whatsoever. I'm going to challenge you this morning. If you're in that category saying, you know, I don't have to speak in tongues, then, then you know, I don't even want to pursue that. You know, I'm going to ask you to be open to ask God if you'd like that to happen. If you'd like that to happen in my life, I want that to happen. End of bunny trail. Let's go back to another out-of-the-loop group. I know for sure I've just lost a few of you, but that's okay. You can go do business with God and uh, catch me when I pray at the end. Out-of-the-loop group number two. Those who are religious and have absolutely no intention of becoming followers of Jesus. Paul enters into the synagogue in verse 8 of Acts chapter 19. He spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is this cool phrase about the, the church. The way to know. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life. And they pick up on that. And what does it say then? It says, so Paul left them. What happens to people who are obstinate? You can see it over and over and over in the teachings of Jesus. When, Jesus, when people came up to Jesus and asked him a question, the answer you got was based on how you asked the question. If you asked an honest question, you got a great answer. If you asked a tricky question, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. I will ask you a question. You're going to get back at you. When Jesus starts giving you a parable, when you ask him a question, you know that you asked him an evasive question. These people have now said, we're becoming obstinate. We understand it. We've decided with our whole heart to reject it. We've become religious. I'm reading a book about Luther right now. And, and Luther said, when you understood the, the do's and the don'ts of the Bible called the law, if you understand th th that whole thing, there was basically three things that you could do with that, with that uh, um, excuse me, not three things if you know about it, but there's three ways to interact with the law or the Old Testament do's and don'ts. First thing was is you're ignorant of it and you're living like you're ignorant. Second thing was you knew about them, but you said, so what? And you live the way you want. And the third way was you knew about them and you decided, you know what, I'm going to live my life, do whatever I can to try to please God by following all of these rules. Luther said the only appropriate thing to do with all the rules was the fourth thing, 
And that was to let them point to you and show you that you're a sinner and that you need the cross. Luther argues, and I, I'm totally Lutheran on this, that the third group is the most dangerous. Because they look good. So the two groups, they look yucky. And they know they look yucky. We saw this picture yesterday at Teen Challenge. I encourage you, that's a great ministry. Uh, this picture before meth and then after meth. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Meth is a bad thing. Icky, right? So these people look like that. They just look icky. But the person who's trying to do good, they, can, they, they, they look good on the inside, but they're religious. They're obstinate towards God. Isn't that funny? Because they're their own God. I can do it myself, God. Thanks. I don't need the cross. I can, I can do it on my own. That's what these people were. They were obstinate towards God. And what does Paul do? He leaves them. Where does he go? He goes to the pagans. He goes to the meth people. These people stay out of the loop. Another group out of the loop. And I love Luke. He just guy's got a sense of humor because this is just a funny story. Luke 18, starting in the second half of verse 19, excuse me, second half of verse 9. He took the disciples with him and had daily discussions uh, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So this is spreading all over the place, all over Asia. This is happening. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul as opposed to just the ordinary miracles. Uh, but these are the extraordinary ones. Listen to them. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. Most, most scholars think that that was Paul working. Uh, he taught in the, the late afternoon. And in the mornings and the evenings, he would work with his tent making. And he would wear a handkerchief around his, his uh, forehead and, a, and a, around his waist. He'd wear an apron. And, and if people would just touch that, it says they would take him to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. That's an extraordinary miracle. I would put that in the extraordinary miracle category, eh? Some, and now it says this, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, so listen now, there's a Jew, Jewish people, and what their, their, their occupation was exorcist for hire. That's what they did. We went around trying to drive out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches... Not, not who I know, but this guy Paul, this guy's doing the apron thing. That's got to work. The apron thing has got to work. We'll just use that name of Jesus. We'll exploit the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Here are these great guys. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish uh, chief priest. Most people think that this guy's not listed anywhere as any kind of chief or high priest or anything. He just was kind of a, a self-described uh, big shot in the Jewish religion, we're doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. This is great. Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Isn't that great? The demons say that to the guy. Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard, but you, you ain't got nothing. And this is great. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's a beating. <laughs> naked. That's just so funny. 
Isn't that funny? I mean, this, this demon, demon-possessed guy beats them up, but in the process, he rips them off all their clothing. That, that's just a beating. When you get, you're walking out of somebody's house, and you're not only just bloody, but you're buck naked, you've been beaten up. Out of the loop group number three is people have tried to exploit Jesus for their own personal gain. They're not followers of Jesus, but they just exploit the name of Jesus. I'm not going to even list any examples there because if I do, it might get me in trouble. Acts chapter 19. How do you get in the loop? When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Remember this society. These are the, the pagans and the politicians and the, perhaps people that cheated in commerce. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was about a day's wage. 50,000 days wages worth of these scrolls were burned up. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I got a question for this morning as we close, as we move to a time of communion and as a time of corporate worship. Will you allow Jesus to move you into the loop? Wherever, Wherever those things you land on. This morning as we talked about people who maybe don't have the full message of Christ. Maybe you, you've been a, a, a church person all your life, but you, you never really came to the point where you said, oh, it's about whether or not I trust Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins. Today I'm going to do that. Maybe for some of you it's been a pushing aside of the Holy Spirit and his power in your life. This could be the day. Say, Spirit, today from this moment forward, however you want to move, I'll give you freedom to move. Others of you have maybe done the flip and you've been, you, you've been pushing certain gifts even on yourself and on others. You, know, you used to have freedom. Freedom to just let the Spirit do what He wants to do. You don't need to crank out the Holy Spirit and turn on the Holy Spirit faucet. He will do it. He's been doing it for centuries. He can continue to do it. Some of you are at the point where your hearts are getting obstinate. You just need to let the God work in your life and break that up. Others of you, I really pray this isn't true, but others you might be exploiting the name of Jesus for whatever reason. Maybe wanting to date someone who's a Christian. You think, if I just go to church and put on a Jesus face, I can be with this person. Whatever. How is God asking you to burn your scrolls? How is, asking, how is God asking you to, to get into the loop? Let's pray together. Lord, I seriously doubt that in this room there are people who literally need to burn up scrolls. But Father, I know for every one of us we have to come to you and face you alone, not religion, not a system, but you as the risen Lord. Holy Spirit, I want to give you permission to move as you would wish in this room. Heal where you want to heal. Gift where you want to gift. 
move and convict and encourage and comfort. God, we pray that, that all of your gifts would be manifested at Hope Community Church. All of your gifts would be manifested in and amongst us. That we wouldn't be jealous of one another for the different giftings that you've given. Lord, I pray for those people in this room who maybe for the first time in their lives, they say, yes, today's the day I want to start a journey with Jesus. God, that you'd give them the courage right now to turn from their sin, to burn those scrolls, whatever they are, and to right now, right now, right here, in the quietness of their heart, to just say, Jesus, I want you to be my sin bearer. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I will follow you the rest of my days. Lord, I pray for people in this room whose hearts have become hard and they've become religious. Maybe they started out well, but they're starting to become hard. God, would you do it? Would you, get, would you grant a gift even this morning and just bust open those doors that are being closed in our hearts? We pray by your spirit you do that. God, would you give us courage now, especially as we move towards a time of communion, that we'd self-examine so that we could see those areas where you want us to burn up some scrolls. Pray this in Jesus' name.